Chapter Eight, Part Two, of Herndon's Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Herndon's Lincoln by William H. Herndon and Jesse William Welk, Section Eleven. After his return from the legislature. Lincoln determined to remove to Springfield the county seat and begin the practice of the law Having been so instrumental in securing the removal of the state capital from Vandalia and having received such Encouraging assurances from Major John T. Stewart and other leading citizens. He felt confident of a good start He had little if any money, but hoped to find in Springfield as he had in New Salem good and influential friends who recognizing alike his honesty and his nobility of character would aid him whenever a crisis came and their help was needed in this hope he was by no means in error for his subsequent history shows that he indeed united his friends to himself with hooks of steel i had up to this time frequently seen mr lincoln had often while visiting my cousins james and rowan herndon at new salem met him at their house but became warmly attached to him soon after his removal to Springfield There was something in his tall and angular frame his ill-fitting garments honest face and lively humor that imprinted his Individuality on my affection and regard what impression I made on him I had no means of knowing till many years afterward He was my senior by nine years and I looked up to him naturally enough as my superior in everything a thing I continued to do till the end of his days Now that the state capital was to be located at Springfield That place began by way of asserting its social superiority to put on a good many airs Wealth made its gaudy display and thus sought to attain a preeminence from which learning and refinement are frequently cut off Already people had settled there who could trace their descent down a long line of distinguished ancestry the established families were mainly from Kentucky they re-echoed the sentiments and reflected the arrogance and elegance of a slave-holding aristocracy the Todds Stuarts and Edwardses were there with priests dogs and servants there also were the Mathers Lambs Updikes Fawkers and Fords amid all the flourishing about in carriages and the pretentious elegance of that early day was Lincoln of origin doubtful if not unknown poor without the means of hiding his poverty he represented yet another importation from kentucky which is significantly comprehended by the term the poor whites springfield containing between one and two thousand people was near the northern line of settlement in illinois still it was the center of a limited area of wealth and refinement its citizens were imbued with the spirit of push and enterprise Lincoln therefore could not have been thrown into a better or more appreciative community In March of 1837 he was licensed to practice law His name appears for the first time as attorney for the plaintiff in the case of Hawthorne versus Woolridge He entered the office and became the partner of his comrade in the Black Hawk War John T. Stewart who had gained rather an extensive practice and who by the loan of sundry textbooks several years before had encouraged Lincoln to continue in the study of law 
Stewart had immigrated from Kentucky in 1828, and on account of his nativity, if for no other reason, had great influence with the leading people in Springfield. He used to relate that on the next morning after his arrival in Springfield, he was standing in front of the village store, leaning against a post in the sidewalk, and wondering how to introduce himself to the community, when he was approached by a well-dressed old gentleman, who, interesting himself in the newcomer's welfare, inquired after his history and business. "'I'm from Kentucky,' answered Stewart, "'and my profession is that of a lawyer, sir. What is the prospect here?' Throwing his head back and closing his left eye, the old gentleman reflected a moment. "'Young man, damn slim chance for that kind of a combination here,' was the response. At the time of Lincoln's entry into the office, Stewart was just recovering from the effects of a congressional race in which he had been the loser. He was still deeply absorbed in politics, and was preparing for the next canvas in which he was finally successful, defeating the wily and ambitious Stephen A. Douglas. In consequence of the political allurements, Stewart did not give to the law his undivided time or the full force of his energy and intellect. Thus, more or less, responsibility in the management of business and the conduct of cases soon devolved on Lincoln. The entries in the account books of the firm are all in the handwriting of Lincoln. Most of the declarations and pleas were written by him, too. This sort of exercise was never congenial to him, and it was the only time, save a brief period under Judge Logan, that he served as junior partner and perform the labor required of one who serves in that rather subordinate capacity. He had not yet learned to love work. The office of the firm was in the upper story of a building opposite the northwest corner of the present courthouse square. In the room underneath, the county court was held. The furniture was in keeping with the pretensions of the firm, a small lounge or bed, a chair containing a buffalo robe in which the junior member was wont to sit and study, a hard wooden bench, a feeble attempt at a bookcase, and a table which answered for a desk. Lincoln's first attempt at settlement in Springfield, which preceded a few days his partnership with Stewart, has been geographically described by his friend Joshua F. Speed, who generously offered to share his quarters with a young legal aspirant. Speed, who was a prosperous young merchant, reports that Lincoln's personal effects consisted of a pair of saddlebags, containing two or three law books, and a few pieces of clothing. He had ridden into town on a borrowed horse, relates Speed, and engaged, from the only cabinet-maker in the village, a single bedstead. He came into my store, set his saddlebags on the counter, and inquired, what the furniture for a single bedstead would cost. I took slate and pencil, made a calculation, and found the sum for furniture complete would amount to seventeen dollars in all. Said he, It is probably cheap enough, but I want to say that cheap as it is, I have not the money to pay. But if you will credit me until Christmas, and my experiment here as a lawyer is a success, I will pay you then. If I fail in that, I will probably never pay you at all. The tone of his voice was so melancholy that I felt for him. I looked up at him, and I thought then, as I think now, that I never saw so gloomy and melancholy a face in my life. I said to him, So small a debt seems to affect you so deeply. 
I think I can suggest a plan by which you'll be able to attain your end without incurring any debt. I have a very large room and a very large double bed in it, which you are perfectly welcome to share with me if you choose. Where is your room? he asked. Upstairs, said I, pointing to the stairs leading from the store to my room. Without saying a word, he took his saddlebags on his arm and went upstairs, set them down on the floor, came down again, and with a face beaming with pleasure and smiles, exclaimed, Well, Speed, I'm moved. William Butler, who was prominent in the removal of the capital from Vandalia to Springfield, took no little interest in Lincoln, while a member of the legislature. After his removal to Springfield, Lincoln boarded at Butler's house for several years. He became warmly attached to the family, and it is probable the matter of pay never entered Butler's mind. He was not only able but willing to befriend the young lawyer in this and many other ways. Stephen T. Logan was judge of the circuit court, and Stephen A. Douglas was prosecuting attorney. Among the attorneys we find many promising spirits. Edward D. Baker, John T. Stewart, Cyrus Walker, Samuel H. Treat, Jesse B. Thomas, George Forquer, Dan Stone, Ninian W. Edwards, John J. Hardin, Schuler Strong, A. T. Bledsoe, and Josiah Lamborn, a galaxy of names, each destined to shed more or less luster on the history of the state. While I am inclined to believe that Lincoln did not, after catering Stewart's office, do as much deep and assiduous studying as people generally credit him with, yet I am confident he absorbed not a little learning by contact with the great minds who thronged about the courts and state capital. The books of Stuart and Lincoln during 1837 show a practice more extensive than lucrative, for while they received a number of fees, only two or three of them reached fifty dollars, and one of these has a credit of coat to Stuart fifteen dollars showing that they were compelled now and then even to trade out their earnings the litigation was as limited in importance as in extent there were no great corporations as in this progressive day retaining for counsel the brains of the bar in every county seat but the greatest as well as the least had to join the general scramble for practice the courts consumed as much time deciding who had committed an assault or a trespass on a neighbor's ground as it spent on the solution of questions arising on contracts or unraveling similar legal complications lawyers depended for success not on their knowledge of the law or their familiarity with its underlying principles but placed their reliance rather on their frontier oratory and the influence of their personal bearing before the jury lincoln made speed store headquarters there politics religion and all other subjects were discussed there also public sentiment was made the store had a large fireplace in the rear and around it the lights of the town collected every evening as the sparks flew from the crackling logs another and more brilliant fire flashed when these great minds came into collision here were wont to gather lincoln douglas baker calhoun browning lamborn jesse b thomas and others only those who were present and listened to these embryonic statesmen and budding orators will ever be able to recall their brilliant thoughts and appreciate their youthful enthusiasm in the fall and winter of eighteen thirty seven 
while i was attending college at jacksonville the persecution and death of elijah p lovejoy at alton took place this cruel and uncalled-for murder had aroused the anti-slavery sentiment everywhere it penetrated the college and both faculty and students were loud and unrestrained in their denunciation of the crime my father who was thoroughly pro-slavery in his ideas believing that the college was too strongly permeated with the virus of abolitionism forced me to withdraw from the institution and return home but it was too late my soul had absorbed too much of what my father believed was rank poison the murder of lovejoy filled me with more desperation than the slave scene in new orleans did lincoln for while he believed in non-interference with slavery so long as the constitution permitted and authorized its existence i although acting nominally with the whig party up to eighteen fifty three struck out for abolitionism pure and simple on my return to springfield from college I hired to Joshua F. Speed as clerk in his store. My salary, $700 per annum, was considered good pay then. Speed, Lincoln, Charles R. Hurst, and I slept in the room upstairs over the store. I had worked for Speed before going to college, and after hiring to him this time again, continued in his employ for several years. The young men who congregated about the store formed a society for the encouragement of debate and literary efforts. Sometimes we would meet in a lawyer's office, and often in Speed's room. Besides the debates, poems and other original productions were read. Unfortunately, we ruled out the ladies. I'm free to admit I would not encourage a similar thing nowadays, but in that early day the young men had not the comforts of books and newspapers which are within the reach of every boy now some allowance therefore should be made for us i have forgotten the name of the society if it had any and can only recall a few of its leading spirits lincoln james matheny noah rickard evan butler miltus hay and newton francis were members i joined also matheny was secretary we were favored with all sorts of literary productions lincoln himself entertained us with a few lines of rhyme intended to illustrate some weakness in women her frailty perhaps matheny was able several years ago to repeat the one stanza which follows and that was all he could recall perhaps it was best he could remember no more whatever spiteful fools may say each jealous ranting yelper no woman ever went astray without a man to help her besides this organization we had a society in springfield which contained and commanded all the culture and talent of the place unlike the other one its meetings were public and reflected great credit on the community we called it the young man's lyceum late in eighteen thirty seven lincoln delivered before the society a carefully prepared address on the perpetuation of our free institutions the inspiration and burthen of it was law and order it has been printed in full so often and it is always to be found in the list of lincoln's public speeches that i presume i need not reproduce it here it was highly sophomoric in character and abounded in striking and lofty metaphor in point of rhetorical effort it excels anything he ever afterward attempted 
Probably it was the thing people expect from a young man of 28. The address was published in the Sangamon Journal and created for the young orator a reputation which soon extended beyond the limits of the locality in which he lived. As illustrative of his style of oratory, I beg to introduce the concluding paragraph of the address. Having characterized the surviving soldiers of the Revolution as living histories, he closes with this thrilling flourish. But these histories are gone. They can be read no more forever. They were a fortress of strength, but what invading foreman never could do, the silent artillery of time has, the leveling of its walls. They are gone. They were a forest of giant oaks, but the all-resistless hurricane has swept over them and left only here and there a lonely trunk, despoiled of its verdure, shorn of its foliage, unshading and unshaded, to murmur in a few more gentle breezes, and to combat with its mutilated limbs a few more rude storms, then to sink and be no more. They were pillars of the Temple of Liberty, and now that they have crumbled away, that temple must fall, unless we, their descendants, supply their places with other pillars hewn from the same solid quarry of sober reason. Passion has helped us, but can do no more. It will in future be our enemy. Reason, cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason, must furnish all the materials for our future support and defense. Let these materials be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular a reverence for the Constitution and the laws. Upon these let the proud fabric of freedom rest as the rock of its basis, and as truly as has been said of the only greater institution, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In time, Lincoln's style changed. He became more eloquent, but with less gaudy ornamentation. He grew in oratorical power, dropping gradually the alliteration and rosy metaphor of youth, until he was able at last to deliver that grandest of all orations, the Gettysburg Address. One evening, while the usual throng of loungers surrounded the inviting fireplace in Speed's store, the conversation turned on political matters. The disputants waxed warm and acrimonious as the discussion proceeded. Business being over for the day, I strolled back, and seating myself on a keg, listened with eager interest to the battle going on among those would-be statesmen. Douglas, I recollect, was leading on the Democratic side. He had already learned the art of dodging in debate, but still he was subtle, fiery, and impetuous. He charged the Whigs with every blunder and political crime he could imagine. No vulnerable spot seemed to have escaped him. At last, with great vehemence, he sprang up and abruptly made a challenge to those who differed with him to discuss the whole matter publicly, remarking that this store is no place to talk politics. In answer to Douglas's challenge, the contest was entered into. It took place in the Presbyterian Church. Douglas, Calhoun, Lamborn, and Thomas represented the Democrats, and Logan, Baker, Browning, and Lincoln, in the order named, presented the Whig side of the question. One evening was given to each man, and it therefore required over a week to complete the tournament. 
Lincoln occupied the last evening and although the people by that time had necessarily grown a little tired of the monotony and well-worn repetition yet lincoln's manner of presenting his thoughts and answering his democratic opponents excited renewed interest so deep was the impression he created that he was asked to furnish his speech to the sangamon journal for publication and it afterward appeared in the columns of that organ meanwhile mr lincoln had attended one special session of the legislature in july of eighteen thirty seven the session was called to take some action with regard to the financial condition of the state the bank of the united states and the new york and philadelphia banks had suspended specific payments this action had precipitated general ruin among businessmen and interests over the entire country the called session of the legislature was intended to save the illinois banks from impending dissolution lincoln retained his position on the committee on finance and had lost none of his enthusiasm over the glorious prospects of internal improvements the legislature instead of abridging only extended the already colossal proportions of the great system in this they paid no heed to the governor whose head seems to have been significantly clear on the folly of the enterprise in eighteen thirty eight mr lincoln was again elected to the legislature at this session as the nominee of the whig party he received thirty-eight votes for speaker w m l d ewing his successful competitor the democratic candidate received forty-three votes and was elected besides retaining his place on the finance committee lincoln was assigned to the committee on counties the enthusiasm and zeal of the friends of internal improvements began to flag now in view of the fact that the bonds issued were beginning to find their true level in point of value lincoln together with others of kindred views tried to bolster the system up but soon the discouraging fact became apparent that no more money could be obtained and the legislature began to decant on what part of the debt was lawful and what unlawful repudiation seemed not far off mr lincoln despaired now of ever becoming the dewitt clinton of illinois we find him admitting his share of the responsibility in the present crisis and finally concluding that he was no financier after all no sooner had the legislature adjourned than he decided if he had not already so determined to run for the same place again he probably wanted it for a vindication he was pursued now more fiercely than ever and he was better able to endure the vilification of a political campaign than when he first offered himself to the voters in new salem among the democratic orators who stumped the county at this time was one taylor commonly known as colonel dick taylor he was a showy bombastic man with a weakness for fine clothes and other personal adornments frequently he was pitted against lincoln and indulged in many bitter flings at the lordly ways and aristocratic pretensions of the whigs he had a way of appealing to his horny-handed neighbors and resorted to many other artful tricks of a demagogue when he was one day expatiating in his accustomed style lincoln in a spirit of mischief and as he expressed it to take the wind out of his sails slipped up to the speaker's side and catching his vest by the lower edge gave it a sharp pull 
the latter instantly opened and revealed to his astonished hearers a ruffled shirt front glittering with watch chains seals and other golden jewels the effect was startling the speaker stood confused and dumbfounded while the audience roared with laughter when it came lincoln's turn to answer he covered the gallant colonel over in this style while colonel taylor was making these charges against the whigs over the country riding in fine carriages wearing ruffled shirts kid gloves massive gold watch chains with large gold seals and flourishing a heavy gold-headed cane i was a poor boy hired on a flatboat at eight dollars a month and had only one pair of breeches to my back and they were buckskin now if you know the nature of buckskin when wet and dried by the sun it will shrink and my breeches kept shrinking until they left several inches of my legs bare between the tops of my socks and the lower part of my breeches and whilst i was growing taller they were becoming shorter and so much tighter that they left a blue streak around my legs that can be seen to this day if you call this aristocracy i plead guilty to the charge it was during this same canvass that lincoln by his manly interference protected his friend e d baker from the anger of an infuriated crowd baker was a brilliant and effective speaker and quite as full too of courage as invective he was addressing a crowd in the courtroom which was immediately underneath stuart and lincoln's office just above the platform on which the speaker stood was a trap door in the floor which opened into lincoln's office lincoln at the time as was often his habit was lying on the floor looking down through the door at the speaker i was in the body of the crowd baker was hot-headed and impulsive but brave as a lion growing warm in his arraignment of the democratic party he charged that wherever there was a land office there was a democratic newspaper to defend its corruptions this angered the brother of the editor of our town paper who was present and who cried out pull him down at the same time advancing from the crowd as if to perform the task himself baker his face pale with excitement squared himself for resistance a shuffling of feet a forward movement of the crowd and great confusion followed just then a long pair of legs were seen dangling from the aperture above and instantly the figure of lincoln dropped on the platform motioning with his hands for silence and not succeeding he seized a stone water pitcher standing nearby threatening to break it over the head of the first man who laid hands on baker hold on gentlemen he shouted this is the land of free speech mr baker has a right to speak and ought to be heard i'm here to protect him and no man shall take him from this stand if i can prevent it his interference had the desired effect quiet was soon restored and the valiant baker was allowed to proceed i was in the back part of the crowd that night and an enthusiastic baker man myself i knew he was a brave man and even if lincoln had not interposed i felt sure he wouldn't have been pulled from that platform without a bitter struggle this canvass eighteen forty was mr lincoln's last campaign for the legislature feeling that he had had enough honor out of the office he probably aspired for a place of more distinction jesse b thomas one of the men who had represented the democratic side in the great debate in the presbyterian church in a speech at the courthouse during this campaign indulged in some fun at the expense of the long nine 
reflecting somewhat more on Lincoln than the rest. The latter was not present, but being apprised by his friends of what had been said, hastened to the meeting, and soon after Thomas closed, stepped upon the platform and responded. The substance of his speech on this occasion was not so memorable as the manner of its delivery. He felt the sting of Thomas's allusions, and for the first time on the stump, or in public, resorted to mimicry for effect. In this, as will be seen later along, he was without a rival. He imitated Thomas in gesture and voice, at times caricaturing his walk and the very motion of his body. Thomas, like everybody else, had some peculiarities of expression and gesture, and these Lincoln succeeded in rendering more prominent than ever. The crowd yelled and cheered as he continued. Encouraged by these demonstrations, the ludicrous features of the speaker's performance gave way to intense and scathing ridicule. Thomas, who was obliged to sit nearby and endure the pain of this unique ordeal, was ordinarily sensitive. But the exhibition goaded him to desperation. He was so thoroughly wrought up with suppressed emotion that he actually gave way to tears. I was not a witness of this scene. But the next day it was the talk of the town, and for years afterward it was called the skinning of Thomas. Speed was there, so were A. Y. Ellis, Ninian W. Edwards, and David Davis, who was just then coming into prominence. The whole thing was so unlike Lincoln, it was not soon forgotten, either by his friends or enemies. I heard him afterwards say that the recollection of his conduct that evening filled him with the deepest chagrin. He felt that he had gone too far, and to rid his good nature of a load, hunted up Thomas and made ample apology. The incident with its sequel proved that Lincoln could not only be vindictive, but manly as well. He was selected as an elector on the Harrison ticket for president in 1840, and as such stumped over a good portion of the state. In debate, he frequently met Douglas, who had already become the standard-bearer and exponent of democratic principles. These joint meetings were spirited affairs sometimes, but at no time did he find the little giant averse to a conflict. He was very sensitive, relates one of his colleagues on the stump, where he thought he had failed to meet the expectations of his friends. I remember a case. He was pitted by the Whigs in 1840 to debate with Mr. Douglas, the Democratic champion. Lincoln did not come up to the requirements of the occasion. He was conscious of his failure, and I never saw any man so much distressed. He begged to be permitted to try it again, and was reluctantly indulged. And in the next effort he transcended our highest expectations. I never heard, and never expect to hear, such a triumphant vindication as he then gave of Whig measures or policy. He never after, to my knowledge, fell below himself. The campaign ended in his election to the legislature. He was again the caucus nominee of the Whigs for Speaker, receiving 36 votes, but his former antagonist, William L.D. Ewing, was elected by a majority of 10 votes over him. The proceedings of and laws enacted by this legislature are so much a matter of history and so generally known that it seems a needless task on my part to enter into details. It is proper to note, however, in passing, that Mr. Lincoln was neither prompt nor constant in his attendance 
during this session. He had been to a certain extent upset by another love affair, the particulars of which must be assigned to a future chapter. End of section 11